together here this morning as a church family so our kids can stay with us. I promise not to use any foul language or, you know, open up a can of worms that have to be closed when you get home, parents, okay? So I'll do my best, all right? But, but again, you can turn the Bible to Psalm 36 this morning. Again, if you are a child, there also was, there was some bags in the lobby with some activities and some sermon-related things. So if you missed those on the way in, feel free to grab that as well. Or if you're an adult with a short attention span, grab a bag, okay? They're for you as well. But we're going to turn in the Bible again to Psalm 36. It's printed for you in the bulletin on page 9. And again, a big thank you to Pastor Brian Herring for preaching in my absence last week. Brian is a very, very long-time friend of mine. I've known him for quite some time. Our families are quite close, and so I was grateful for his friendship and for him coming up from Spanish River to preach last week. I trust that it was an enjoyable time uh, for all, but he also was in the Psalms providentially as we have continued our summer series again through this wonderful worship book, this hymn book of ancient Israel. And today we are continuing by looking at Psalm 36. So again, you can look in the bulletin or if you have a Bible of your own, I'll read it for us. And it says this, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. But your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. It is common in many stories, especially stories that involve a king and their royal court, to have a character who is a corrupt advisor to the king. A corrupt advisor to the king. Someone who whispers lies, who harbors secrets, who sows deceit in the court. Think about the mischievous character Jafar in the Sultan's court in the Disney movie Aladdin. Jafar, this mischievous, shadowy character. 
or the character, lesser-known character known as Wormtongue in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, who is an advisor to King Theoden, someone who literally poisoned the mind of the king and kept him under a spell. Again, this shadowy, sickly, sycophant character that only tells the king what he wants to hear. Again, who twists words in order to gain advantage, perverts the truth, perverts justice, again, poisons the mind of their subjects. You can find these characters in many stories, many movies. Well, if you think about it, in a roundabout way, this is the picture that David is painting in verses 1 through 4 of this psalm. This is the corrosive, deceptive, decaying power of sin when it goes unchecked in our lives. Notice there again, Psalm 36, right there in the first verse, how David names it. He says transgression, transgression, but then he personifies it. He gives it human characteristics, if you will. Transgression or sin, it speaks. It speaks to the heart. And the question is, how does it speak? Does sin or transgression speak to our hearts truthfully? No. No. But rather, it speaks a lie. And if you notice here, the lie that it speaks is twofold. Again, right there in verse 1, God is not to be feared. That's the first lie that sin speaks in our lives, right there. There is no fear of God before his eyes. And the second thing is that we, not God, but, but we, mankind, humankind, we are to be flattered. That's the twofold lie that sin speaks in our lives. God is not to be feared, right there in verse 1, but that we, rather, are to be flattered, right there in verse 2. And so we begin to see here that David, the psalmist, is unpacking for us the psychology of sin in any of its forms. The psychology of pursuing that which is against the revealed will of God in Scripture. His law, his morality, his principles, his priorities. Again, when we do that, the first thing we often do is that we insist that God is not worthy of consideration. Not worthy of fear. God is not worthy of reverent awe not worthy of consideration, not worthy of fear again, and therefore not worthy of our obedience, but rather, we are worthy. We are worthy. We know better. We will call the shots. We instead really should be in the position of God, not God himself. And again, if you think back to the stories or the movies that I mentioned, isn't that how it always plays out? Isn't that exactly how it plays out? Why does Jafar whisper lies to the sultan in the shadows? Why does Jafar ultimately fear the character of Aladdin when he comes on the scene? If you have not seen Aladdin, I apologize, okay? But it has been out for a long time, so, so hopefully you'll get the reference either way. But why does he do that? Well, again, because in that story, Jafar is merely a servant, 
but he thinks he should be sultan. He believes that he should be the one in charge. Or go to Lord of the Rings. Why does Wormtongue whisper lies to Theoden and plot in the shadows? Well, because he is in league with Saruman, the evil lord in the story, and he's been promised something that he will never actually obtain. He's been promised the kingdom himself, but again, he will never receive it. And before we just write these things off as, you know, fairy tale dynamics, I would argue that we do not because, number one, there's a reason why those ring true in stories. There's a reason why that rings true in stories of all cultures. But secondly, Satan would actually love nothing more than for you to write those dynamics off as just something that occurs in stories or fairy tales and not actually in our lives. But the truth of the matter is that we find ourselves playing all of those parts, all of those characters, at some point or another in our lives. We can be like the sultan. We can be like King Theoden. And we hear, again, the voice of darkness. We hear the voice of the evil one. We hear the siren's call of temptation as it speaks to our hearts, whatever sin that might be for us. And what it does in that moment as it whispers to us is it falsely puffs us up. It tells us what we want to hear. And if you think about it, that's exactly what happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The original worm tongue, if you will, not in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, but the actual serpent himself in the garden whispered to Adam and Eve. And what did he whisper? You won't surely die. You don't have to listen to God. Whatever he told you is, it's a lie. Whatever he told you isn't actually for your own good. You won't surely die. What God calls evil, you should call good. He's out to get you, to deny you your rights to make your life miserable, to put you in a straitjacket, whatever it might be, it whispers in our ears. And the question is, what is it for you? What is it for me? What is the sin or what is the temptation that crouches at all times just around the corner that tricks us into thinking we need it? Where we trick ourselves even into believing we deserve it. That for God to disallow whatever it might be is really for God to, again, not have our best interest in mind, but to be selfish or to hoard from us. Not to because he loves us, but because he actually doesn't care for us. Again, it's the lie as old as time. What is it for you? But we can also switch roles at times and be like, Jafar, or be like Wormtongue. Again, if we listen too long to that voice, we can become our own corrupt advisor to our hearts. And again, we begin to flatter ourselves. We begin to convince ourselves, again, that God has it all wrong. We should be the ones in charge. We should be king. And again, we see that as well all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us that the sin underneath every sin, every sin, we don't have to take a show of hands, we don't have to name it here, whatever we struggle with, but the sin underneath every sin in our lives is ultimately the sin of idolatry. It's idolatry. 
not fearing God, flattering one's self, embracing deceit, and choosing to believe in the moment that God is not who he says he is. Perhaps even we are God. And again, if you follow the pattern of the psalm here, it leads us into the words of verse 4 where we plot trouble. And we find ourselves setting ourselves in a way that is not good. Verse 4, not rejecting evil. And so if that's the human problem, if that is the psychology of sin, if you will, if that's the human problem that we all face, that we all do battle against, and the question is, what is the gospel solution? And the gospel solution is found right there in verses 5 and 6. It's the steadfast love of the Lord extending to the heavens, the faithfulness of the Lord reaching to the clouds, the righteousness of the Lord firm as a mountain, the judgments of the Lord like the oceans deep, the salvation of the Lord for all creation. In other words, the answer by God for the human problem of sin, in whatever time period we find ourselves, whatever culture we find ourselves, whatever place in life we find ourselves, the answer by God to the human problem of sin is to overwhelm it with his grace. To overwhelm the smallness of our idolatry with the greatness and the grandeur of God to bring into the light of God's mercy whatever it is we struggle with and then to measure it against the greatness of God. Whatever it is that we functionally bow down to, whatever it is that we functionally devote our lives to and chase after and look to to provide ourselves meaning and purpose and satisfaction, we bring that before the holy God of all and we measure it in that moment against his grandeur against his greatness, against his grace. Did you notice the language there in verses 5 and 6, how it compares the love of God and the faithfulness of God to these immeasurable things, these immeasurable objects, mountains and clouds and heavens. And it does that because it wants to remind us that sin has this effect of not, not, not increasing the horizons of our life, But sin has this way of shrinking the horizons of our life. Sin has this way, transgression has this way of turning us inward, making our lives smaller. Think about it. Think about if someone's caught in the throes of addiction. Life is shrunk to this moment by moment, just chasing, to the the exclusion of all else, chasing the next high, chasing the next pleasure point, whatever it might be. In in their life, the horizon is shrunk. The false promise is that it will grow, right? This will make you happier. This will make you more satisfied. This will free your burdens. And yet what it does in the moment is actually shrinks the horizons of your life. Whether it's the the form or the struggle of self-aggrandizement, where all we can see is ourselves, our desires, our wants, whether it's the inward turn of someone who rejects God and thinks of themselves as God, again, it makes our lives smaller. For if we're God, again, how much smaller and less interesting and scarier has the 
big, wide universe just gotten if we're God, if we are the ones holding it all together, if we are at the center, again, sin or transgression, however you want to name it here, or idolatry at its root is taking something or someone or some experience smaller than God and yet looking to it for what only God can provide. And when we do that, again, when we settle for a substitute, whatever it might be, we're always left wanting, we're always left unsatisfied, we're always like worm tongue being promised the kingdom, but only found in the clutches of the evil one. But notice David's reminder of the solution. We find ourselves in those moments when we find ourselves in that experience of life, we don't look inward, we don't look within, but what do we do? We look out. We look outside of ourselves, we look up and we behold God. We look up and behold God and notice that even in our chasing after idols, what does verse five tell us? His steadfast love remains. We said that a moment ago in our responsive reading. The steadfast love of the Lord remains forever. It extends, did you notice here? It says it extends to the heavens. What does that mean? We so easily can read a verse like that and feel like, ah, it's just a fancy Bible phrase. Eh, it extends to the heavens, sounds nice, sounds good in the song, reads well in the Bible. But what does it actually mean? The steadfast love extends to the heavens, it means for us there is no valley, there is no place in life, there is no pit, there is no point of existence where the love of God is not found. It extends to the highest heavens, which means by inference it also extends to the lowest valleys. There's nowhere in your life where the steadfast love of God is exempt. We may forsake God, but he never forsakes us. He is steadfast and immovable and unchangeable and eternal. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We look up again. We look up when, when, when caught in our sin. We look up and we behold God and notice that even in our chasing after idols, his faithfulness Remains. Notice that word there. His steadfast love extends to the heavens. His faithfulness extends where? To the clouds. He has not abandoned us. He has not forsaken us. But his faithfulness is ever-present. It's all around us. It envelops us like a cloud. I was given a great picture of this. When we were traveling last week, we were in North Carolina. And we were in the mountainous part of North Carolina. And as you know, if you've been there or any kind of mountain range, you get to a certain point where you're literally in the clouds. They sort of descend upon the valleys. They descend upon the low points. And it's a mixture of fog and actual clouds sometimes. And you have this experience of literally being surrounded as if by a vapor, right? This ever-present reality of the cloud. And it's this sort of cool and, 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 again, just unusual experience. Well, again, this is similar to what David talks about here. That the faithfulness of the Lord it envelops us 
like that low-hanging cloud. We are surrounded by the fog of his mercy again at all times and all places. We look up and we behold and notice about God his righteousness, it says. His judgments, they're like the mountains of God. They are fixed and firm. His judgments are like the great deep. Again, the judgments and the righteousness of God are as fixed as the highest mountain peaks that we can see and as fixed as even those mountains under the ocean that we can never see. Again, they are unchanging. And that's a very, very profound picture for us as well. Because it means a couple of practical things for us. To think about the righteousness of God as an unchanging, steadfast, and permanent mountain. And the judgments of God like the great ocean depths. Again, a couple practical takeaways for us there from that language. The first is that it means we only waste our time and do harm to ourselves when we try to think about righteousness or judgment in this sort of ever-evolving cultural fashion, right? Where righteousness is what we call it to be. Or righteousness is what the culture says it to be. Or righteousness is what the latest public opinion poll says it is. No, the scripture speaks against that. It reminds us that the righteousness is this permanently fixed definition we only find from God himself. That righteousness is not cultural. Righteousness is not what we feel in the moment. Righteousness is not, you know, uh, relative and evolving. But righteousness, the holy standards of God, his judgments of what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, what is male, what is female, whatever it might be, right? That they are fixed. They are permanent. That he is the one who defines those things. And he defines them once and for all. And then he reveals them to us in his unchanging word, his unchanging holy scripture. And so we only do ourselves a disservice, again, when we try to chase it or define it elsewhere. But, secondly, it also means for us that the judgment of God towards us. Think about this. It says, go back to verse 6. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. You see, the second thing it means for us there is that the judgment of God upon us in the gospel is equally fixed and equally permanent and equally as immovable as the highest mountain peaks or the deepest ocean trench. And that should be good news for you and for me. This reminder, this picture, this reality that when we honestly despair of our sin, when we honestly see a picture of ourselves there in verses one through four, when we don't hide our transgressions but confess them and cast them upon God's mercy, then the judgment of God and the gospel that our sins are paid for, that our sins are taken from us, that our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, that too is an equally permanent judgment rendered by God that is unchangeable, that is immovable, that is as fixed, as high as the mountain peaks. As the great hymn puts it, in my place 
Condemned he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You see, the judgment of God where he exchanged our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ, and he did so once and for all at the cross, that too is an immovable object, if you will, in your life. No matter what valley you fall into, no matter what sin you struggle with, no matter what moment you find yourself in life, the judgment of God upon you in the gospel is fixed and it's permanent. It's as permanent as the ocean depths. Notice again the contrast there. Look in verse 1 again. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Deep in our heart is the root of sin. But deeper still is the judgment of God to the righteousness of Christ. Right there in verse 6. Deep in our heart is the root of sin, but deeper still is the unfathomable depths of God's grace, the ocean of his mercy, the Mariana Trench of his mercy is deeper still. Micah 7 puts it like this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. There's that, that phrase again, steadfast. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our sins, our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. What a picture for us again of the depths of God's grace. But then finally, as the psalm closes, notice there in the last third of the psalm, verses seven through the end, that David here, the psalm writer, again, after getting this grander and bigger glimpse of God's grace, and he reflects on the steadfast love and faithfulness and permanence of God, David now is this man with new appetites new affections. The smallness and the unsatisfactory nature of sin has been revealed. The deceitfulness and desperation of evil and those who chase after it has been revealed, again, as he contrasts it with the permanence of God. And David here then finds himself longing, if you notice, not for more of what the world offers, not for more of what he struggles with, but he finds himself after reflecting on God. And again, the grandeur of God, the permanence of God in comparison to the impermanence and the smallness of what the world offers, David here finds himself now longing for more of God. He finds himself longing for more of God, for deeper communion and fellowship with him. And notice that, again, in the language and the emotion of those verses towards the end. Look at verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love. What he just reflected on. He says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Again, as the 
song closes, this is the song or a song of praise from a man. It's the song of praise, a stanza of praise from a man who though sinful and still imperfect, still human, is beginning to see how the grace of God changes us. How again, it doesn't remove in the moment every struggle, though it accounts for it and covers it. But it begins over time to give us new hearts and new appetites. We no longer seek refuge in the things of the world, but we long for the refuge. Notice that in verse 7. We long for the refuge only found in God alone. We no longer fill ourselves to the brim with those things which won't satisfy us. We no longer feast headlong on what the world offers. But if you notice there again in the language, verse 8, we feast on the abundance of his house, his grace, his mercy, as we realize that God and God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God and God alone possess here, it says, the fountain of life, possess the keys to abundant life, and only when found in God and the light of his grace can we then begin to see things for what they really are. In your light, he says, do we see light? Only when found in him and him alone can we then begin to see things, ourselves even, the world, for what it really is. So as we close, the question is, how about us this morning? How about you? How about me? Do we despair of the world's lies? Do we despair of the falsehood of sin? Do we claim the grace of the Lord Jesus? Do you claim the grace of the Lord Jesus and his mercy for sinners? If so, then just after we pray in a moment, if you claim the mercy of Christ for sinners, if you despair of this world, if you despair of what transgression and sin speaks to us falsely, again, if we claim the mercy of Christ for sinners in a moment after I pray, you are invited to come and to feast again at the table of the Lord. To be reminded there like we are here in the psalm of the abundance of his house, the abundance of God, his welcome, his pardon, his mercy, his love for sinners, and to cling once more to the fountain of life as it has come our way from the royal courts of heaven as it has come our way in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do reflect on this psalm. We do reflect even on the movies and stories mentioned, and it makes us think of the royal court. 
And it makes us think of you as the king of kings who from the royal, perfect, eternal court of heaven saw fit to send Christ our Savior in the likeness of human flesh and in the darkness of this world that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, might save us, might redeem us, might do for us what we can never do for ourselves and bring us back into fellowship with you. Give us welcome again in your presence into the royal courts of heaven again because of what Christ has done. So God, we thank you. We praise you and we ask that through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, you would help us each and every day to listen less and less to the lies of the evil one, to listen less and less to the temptation of sin and to listen more and more, to attune our ear more and more to what you have done, to who you are, to what you have said about us, that we are yours, that we are your son and your daughter, that we have been bought with a price, that we have been adopted, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. Lord, may we live from that reality, from that identity. And again, Lord, may your grace and mercy guide us every day of our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.